Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, the weekly podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in wherever you are around the UK and indeed the world. And as ever, in our time together, we have got a lot to cram in today. I'm going to reflect, if it's okay with all of you, on the themes of Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer, tax and spend and the Times newspaper. It's all interconnected. I promise you it'll make sense. Some of you might have already got it. Indeed, one of our listeners has written a question about it, Andrew Kitchen. I'm going to make a whole theme of your question, Andrew. We've got a brilliant range of questions on such a fantastic range of topics, but one of them is this running theme of should we change this voting system, electoral reform. I said I'll do an electoral reform special for all you electoral reform freaks out there. Well, I haven't got the energy for that yet, but we're going to come close with some of your questions. But don't worry, those who don't share that passion, it will be fleeting before we move on to other issues. Loads to get into our time together. And as you might have noticed, as you are running, walking your dog along the canal or the Australian beaches or cooking or baking bread, hopefully you'll notice the sound quality being really, really great now because I'm recording in a studio. Some of you have kindly emailed and said, oh, Steve, yeah, we love your podcast, but the volume's a bit low this week and stuff. Well, if you saw where I was recording my podcast until my appearance in the studio today, you would not be surprised that every now and again there was, how should I put it, a kind of technical hitch. Anyway, you're going to hear it so melodious now as we go about our activities and make sense of this crazy political world. So before I begin with my spiel, if it's okay with all of you, this kind of assembly notices. If you're listening before these happen, on Wednesday night, Rock and Roll Politics is live at the legendary Rope Tackle Arts Centre in Shoreham. So if you're on that south coast, or indeed anywhere, do come along, the Christmas special at Shoreham. And then on Thursday, Rock and Roll Politics is live at King's Place, the Christmas special, and there it's also being streamed. So if you can't make it because you live on the moon or Australia or somewhere, it is being streamed live and indeed available for those of you who get the streaming tickets for a few days after that. And this time, because it's the Christmas special, we don't just make sense of the immediate, we've got to try and make sense of this crazy, crazy year we've lived through and look ahead with all our unreliable predictions and gazing through the fog of 2022. So we will have some fun and we will come out having made even more sense than we do in our time together on the podcast. Now, before all of that, yeah, Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer, Tax and Spend and The Times newspaper. They all come together. I don't know if any of you, and I don't blame you if you didn't, read The Times on Saturday, but it in a way conjured up where we are in politics at the moment, in some respects anyway. This, the, these were the kind of political ingredients in The Times on Saturday. There was a big splash on the front page, Rishi Sunak to cut taxes. And the story then goes into detail how Sunak is impatient to cut taxes, his preferences, and this will be before the election, his preferences will be for income tax or VAT cuts before the election. He is a great tax cutter. This is what he wants to do. 
Further on into the paper, there was an interview with Keir Starmer. The timing of which and the choice of outlet, I think, is interesting for reasons I'll come on to. But let's begin with Sunak. My heart sunk when I read this uh, splash for lots of reasons. First of all, to be kind of marginal for a second, it depresses me that the Times newspaper quite often now uses its front pages as kind of government announcements, like the official government bugle. And this, although not a formal announcement, was an authorised leak from Sunak about his tax-cutting intentions. Second, it had a kind of wild quality to it in the sense that we're about to, in the UK, have the biggest tax hike and level of taxation for many decades. Uh, By the way, if you notice, I don't use the word tax burden, because burden implies it's something terrible that we all have to bear. Whereas if used properly, it can be a form of liberation through better public services. And part of the tax hike, which I think Sunak opposed, him being he kind of makes George Osborne seem like a Marxist. You know, he, he is he is a conventional kind of uh, 80s Thatcherite. But part of that tax rise is, in theory, going to pay for social care. I say in theory because at the moment it's not going to pay for social care. It's going to pay for the shortfall in NHS funding, one of the slightly kind of wacky contortions. But it's not a burden if it liberates us to be healthy and not worry about costs of social care. However, taxes are going up. And yet Sunak, in a way that's unsubtle, cannot really bear it and needs to convey the fact partly to his membership that he is a great tax cutter. And that's another level where I found it very interesting. It tells us, I think, quite a lot about Sunak, that he is still perhaps inevitably immature as a senior minister and aspirant prime minister Tory leader. I say inevitably because he enjoyed the glow of a soaring rise to becoming Chancellor of the Exchequer at a moment of great historic significance, the close to the beginning of the pandemic. And he was regarded as having a good pandemic early on anyway with the furlough scheme, a hugely complex technical issue, which was largely conducted by senior Treasury officials, but he presided over it and got the credit. And because he has relaxed plausibility as a political performer in an era where there are few credible political performers or attractive political performers, people soon started writing that here is a future Tory leader. Now, this is mesmerising for any human being to read that you're about to be uh, or possibly be a prime minister pretty soon. As I discuss in my book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, quite a few of the prime ministers we never had, it went to their head when it was talked about that they could be a prime minister. And clearly this has happened to Sunak. But he is not dealing with the mesmeric delights of becoming a future prime minister very subtly. We have all the dishy-rishy stuff, all the photo opportunities and so on, him with a hoodie, him drinking his coffee out of a heated mug and so on. And I think this was the most clunky and immature pitch uh, in this period of him being a future prime minister, possibly. And the torment in that word, possibly, is great because 
If you look at the state of the finances of the UK at the moment, if you just stand back for a second and look at the demand on public services, you cannot see the space for sweeping tax cuts by the time of the election. They could only come, given the relatively low growth of the British economy because of the pandemic and Brexit, they could only come from swinging real terms cuts in public services or a failure to address the scale of the demand on public services. That's that's where these tax cuts will come. And yet he needs to make the case when it is not at all clear there is a case to be made, even if you are on the Thatcherite right of the Conservative Party in terms of economics. And he has been doing this regularly now in a very clunky way. So the budget, that budget is a classic in its way. Three quarters of the budget was putting the case for relatively high spending, tax rises to meet the demand uh, of public services and doing so in a way, you know, he sort of half of him put the Keynesian case that spending more could actually generate economic growth and that there was no space for tax cuts. But then at the end of the budget, you'll remember, there was a weird two paragraphs, or not weird if you kind of know him, where he says, actually, the state can't do it all. We shouldn't look to the state. I'm a tax cutter. I believe in a small state. There was a kind of section which contradicted all that had preceded it in a very clunky way. And this time splash was a kind of bizarre follow-up to it. And so there he was, uh, Sunak, with that authorised briefing. I had no idea whether he thought it would be the splash or not, kind of entering a fantasy world. And many people tweeting about that front page said probably number 10 will be furious. But here's the twist. Johnson wants those tax cuts too before the election. He is a kind of, whereas Sunak kind of knows who he is. He's an orthodox Thatcherite, an outdated figure to be, in my view, in the modern Conservative Party and in modern Britain. Once again, returning to the orthodoxies of the 80s in a way that is wholly inappropriate to the current position. Uh, But that's where he is. Boris Johnson, as we know, and characteristically, is all over the place. Part of him is Keynesian. He sees the case for borrowing and spending as a way of Uh, boosting growth and communities and public services. But part of him is a Thatcherite who wants a load of pre-election tax-cutting bribes, made more important, really, by the fact that they lied so much at the last general election about how they weren't going to put up taxes. And so he kind of agrees with Sunak, even though both of them have no idea of the route that credibly leads them to go into the next election, having cut taxes with this massive demand on the NHS, with social care not fixed, with Brexit causing a a drop in productivity and GDP, and so on. But there we have it. We kind of know now, through Sunak's premature posturing, I think he gets worried, you know, they're all obsessed these cabinet ministers, and Johnson, with the Conservative Home, you know, the website read by party members, they're all obsessed with their ratings. And Sunak looks, you know, God, having been the most popular amongst party members, he now sees Liz Truss topping the poll, and he thinks, oh, no, you know, I'm putting up taxes, this 
bloody Liz Truss is getting in there, dressing up as Margaret Thatcher in a tank. And there am I putting up taxes and they don't like it. And she's storming ahead. Johnson, who's way down, by the way, in the list of those uh, personal ratings, gets into a complete state. Wait, 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 what am I? What am I? Number 18. Um, it's, it's a kind of pop chart that torments them all. So I think that partly explains it, but it's all too clunky. But it's a warning. And Labour now knows the outline of the Tory strategy at the next election, and it's a fit familiar one. They're going to claim to have cut taxes and claim that Labour will put them up. And we've heard from Johnson that he's going to say quite a lot about Brexit and warn that this Islington Remainer, as he calls Starmer, will, uh, in effect, upend Brexit, uh, kind of, he'll turn that into a threat. But to some of us, that would seem rather reassuring. But we'll come on to that in a minute. So Labour kind of know. Now, what was also interesting in that Saturday Times is that they chose to lead with that off the record briefing from authorised by Sunak, from either Sunak himself or his advisers. Um, now, whether it's always interesting, the dynamics of this, whether it was wholly coordinated or whether Sunak had a coffee with uh, one of their political team and mentioned his determination to do these tax cuts without realising it was going to be the splash in the Times, who knows. But what is also interesting is that Keir Starmer did an interview which didn't make the front page. Uh, He was topped by an off-the-record briefing by old Sunak, who took us into this fantasy world of tax cuts. And that, I think, should be worrying for Starmer and his team. You are leader of the opposition, and when you give an interview, there should be a sense of it being some kind of event. That's not an argument for saying that Starmer should disappear most of the time and only pop up like a kind of kingly figure to pronounce every now and again. Some leaders of the opposition make that mistake, and it just means they make, they're invisible. You've got to do a lot of interviews, but you do have to think beforehand, what is it that gets a headline for the Times newspaper that then generates the Today programme to report it and so on? And there really was nothing in this interview to do it. He talks a bit about his new shadow cabinet. He expresses confidence that Labour will be in a more sustained poll lead in the following year. But as somebody tweeted it was more like a commentator commenting on the political situation rather than a leader seizing the future and trying to shape it for the country via him and his alternative government. It's all artistry, you know, this being leader of the opposition. It's all political art. It's not a kind of science. I mean, to give you an example from the New Labour era pre-97, and by the way, I'm not saying There are huge numbers of lessons to be learnt from a product of the mid-90s. We're in a completely different world now. But it was quite interesting. This is how how it got. Blair was due on, he was leader of the opposition, due on the then Frost programme on Sunday mornings. And they didn't really have a new news story because you don't all the time in opposition. You can't constantly be making policy announcements that seem new, especially this far out from an election. So what they did is, given that Blair had said his priority would be education, 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 they agreed in advance that to get a headline out of this, they would go on the Frost programme 
and pledge that when the Queen read out the first Queen's speech of a Labour government, the education bill would be the first she read out. Now, when you think about it for a second, it's kind of, it's not a news story. And it doesn't matter what order she reads these bloody bills out in that formalised ritual of a Queen's speech. But it was highly effective. So Blair went in and, and Frost kind of said, so what will be the priority of a Labour government if you are elected at the next election? He said, look, David, I've already made it clear education is um, my top priority. And I can reveal today that when the Queen's speech is unveiled, if we are fortunate enough to be elected, our education bill will be right at the top of the list that the Queen reads out if we're elected. And every front page education top priority of a Labour government. Now, that is a sort of crude example of the the way you kind of approach political interviews. But you do have to try and frame a message each time, which kind of enables the journalist then to put it as a news story that then reaches a wider audience. Otherwise, frankly, it's almost a waste of time. The reason, I'm just guessing here, but I think the reason why Keir Starmer uh, chose the Times to do an interview then is because recently the Times has been quite kind to Keir Starmer. He, uh, on the day of, I've hardly spoken about this yet, and uh, I've had a few questions about it, but the CBI conference where Johnson, uh, Pepper Pig, apparently I called it Pepper the Pig last week, my formal apology to mispronounce it. It's all, to be honest, it's a bit new to me, pigism. Anyway, uh, the Times the next day said it was Keir Starmer who delivered the serious speech at the CBI. And Starmer's team and indeed the whole shadow cabinet were thrilled by this because the Times rarely uh, praises a Labour leader, especially under its current editor. And so I think they were thrilled. And then uh, a few days later, they were quite nice to him again in an editorial. I hasten to add, and this is why I'm going to end my spiel talking a bit about the Times as well, is that the Times for Labour leaders is a bit like, you know, the femme fatales in film noirs, you know, where people are drawn towards a femme fatale who leads them towards their doom. Labour leaders are obsessed with the Times uh, and trying to woo them. By the way, the Times never endorses Labour, even in 97, the Times didn't endorse Labour. The Sun did, of course, famously. Uh, but the Times uh, ran a wacky editorial which said back a Eurosceptic candidate in your constituency. Didn't back Blair and New Labour at the height of its kind of popularity. And it won't next time. It'll back the Tories That almost certainly. You can't be human and not be thrilled to see nice stuff about you. And Keir Starmer, who wakes up and reads, oh, you know, he's useless, he's no good, he hasn't got the qualities a lot of the time. And it is deeply depressing and wounding. Uh, leaders pretend they don't care, but they do, all of them. So to read these nice editorials from an influential but deeply partisan source uh, must have been thrilling. And I assume that's why I gave them the interview, uh, seeing this kind of possible potential platform. But, you know, the Times also said, of course, he's got a lot to prove on the economy and fiscal conservatism and vaguely defined reforms of public services, all traps, because he won't deliver what the Times editor 
very right-wing and slightly naive political figure uh, would regard as uh, satisfactory. Uh, There's no way. So it's a kind of trap. It's a dangerous, alluring thing at the Times being nice to a Labour leader. I remember, yeah, Gordon Brown was obsessed with the Times. I saw him once for coffee. He said, well, what was that on page five of the Times? They were, as Tony had the Times in recently, they seemed to be very positive about, you know, there's all this kind of Times. It's very influential, influential on the BBC. Most BBC presenters and editors, contrary to mythology, read the Times as their paper of choice, not not the Guardian. And the columnists are very influential and presenters are friends with some of them. And so, you know, it's a player, um, but it won't, in the end, it will be a trap to follow uh, and woo the times in the hope, uh, they're quite right to woo it, it might neutralise the onslaught an editor would normally deliver uh, in the build-up to an election, but it's not going to endorse Labour. And it will become very critical when Labour does not propose a right-wing manifesto at the election. But the other interesting thing, and this is where it all connects, is although Sunak was being impatient, clunky, politically immature in splashing about his plans to cut taxes, there is a conundrum for Starmer and Labour in all of this. You see, there are epic things any future government will need to do, you know, including if the Tories get in for a fifth term in terms of spending demands. They are just unavoidable, as the Institute for Fiscal Studies made clear after the budget, where they said it is a big tax-raising budget, but unavoidable. However, with the Tories going into the election parading tax cuts, as they will, how do Labour claim to be able to have the means and ambition to meet the huge demands, you know, climate change, health service, the waiting list will be massive at the election, without pledging to spend a lot of money, which will then give the Tories the chance to say, ah, it's Labour, you know, taxes are going to go up, we're cutting them, and all the rest of it, with the backing of the Times and other newspapers. Now, there are ways around that conundrum, which, you know, perhaps we can all have a talk about some other time, uh, but it is a conundrum. So tax and spend is the nightmare in British elections. Nightmarish for uh, Labour, they've lost elections over tax and spend, but nightmarish for the country because it's it's based on a whole series of false premises that are never realised once the election is out of the way. Now, I think there are ways round it. I can see Rachel Reeves moving towards ways round it, but um, th- there are conundrums in what Sunak is saying. But we're going to come to your questions next. We've got a huge range uh, of questions after this very short break while I get these questions together. So, questions. Now, as I said at the beginning, uh, this is kind of like a mini electoral reform special because I've got so many questions on electoral reform. It's a major sacrifice on my part because, as you all know, I don't share this passion for electoral reform or the debate about electoral reform. So I'm going to do uh, read out a few of the questions, but I promise you, for those of you who are with me and not kind of getting so worked up about this issue, we're going to 
move on. But anyway, it's a very interesting range. That's what's so great about um, your questions, the, the, the range, and they come with experience of different countries as well, as we'll uh, as I'll illustrate as we go on. So let's begin. Steve Petrie says, Look, while sympathetic to the case for it in principle, electoral reform, I've previously assumed it will be too difficult to overcome a lack of interest among most voters. However, based on recent contributions to your podcast, I'm beginning to be persuaded that the case for electoral reform is sufficiently strong to attempt it. See, Steve's a bit like me. Uh, Some of you are swaying me gradually towards supporting electoral reform. But he says space has to be created for discussion and engagement from which a proposal can eventually be developed. To start with, this means winning the argument for discussion within one of the major parties, probably Labour. Yeah, well, you see, see, you're already outlining the next 10, 15 years. Discussion, engagement on a proposal, there's huge disagreement about which technical proposal you put forward, and then Labour has to become converted, and that is problematic. So although I'm interested that you are now a convert, Um, your outlining of a sequence is still quite hard, I think, to navigate. Anyway, on we go. Ed Francis, who is, oh yeah, Ed the millennial York University student. Uh, We both went to York, you see, about the same kind of time. Ed's a bit younger. I'm just writing to engage with your point made on your recent podcast. In a discussion on electoral reform, you stated that you consider the issue to be a waste of political energy as it's not one that voters will enthusiastically connect with. However, my understanding is that adopting a pro-PR stance wouldn't be a strategy aimed at voters, but instead at the smaller parties, Lib Dems and Greens, all kind of working together, uh, sort of as we saw in 1997. What do you make of this? And Ed says, oh, many thanks. And as ever, please keep up the brilliant work on my favourite podcast. Thank you, Ed. Well, you are absolutely right. That's what happened in 97. But what you missed out, Ed, is what followed from 97. Blair dropped the pledge to hold a referendum on electoral reform. You know, his hero, Roy Jenkins, spent ages coming up with a proposition. And God, I remember having lunch with Jenkins. I'm going to do a tour of the UK explaining it. Never happened. Not even a referendum on it. So the means to that end is problematic. And there are other problems as... um, Uh, One of our regular correspondents from Ireland, the Reverend Canon Paul Arbuthnot, mentions, he says, I hope you're keeping well as ever. I'm enjoying your podcast here, which caused me to wander as I wander on my long walks in rural County Cork. I I kind of live those walks vicariously. They sound they sound great. I love that. Wander as I wander. I know that's what lots of you do as you listen to the podcast. Some don't wander, some run very fast or row. He writes, I'm enjoying the back and forth between yourself and rock and rollers about the thorny issue of electoral reform. I agree that such a change to the system would bring about a government more representative, and I would welcome that very much. But, and it's a big but, you see, this is where I agree with Paul. We haven't looked at how multi-seater constituencies elected by PR would affect the work of the MP. So this is where it's really useful, hearing from different countries. So he he says, if we look at the workings of TDs, that's members of Parliament, the Irish Parliament, in, now I hope I can pronounce this right, Doyle Aaron, that's the uh, Assembly in Dublin, they work in a different way. TDs are elected via 
PR in multi-seater constituencies. As they chase the votes and transfers in the PR system, the danger of clientelism can come into play. Uh, Yeah, issues like planning applications and such from constituents can suddenly become the keen interest of elected representatives. This can lead to the potential for corruption and a brown envelope culture. The Republic of Ireland suffered from this. Also, the horse trading and forming a government can become almost comical. All the best and a happy Christmas to you. Thank you and to you, Paul. Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm with you with this. So when you look at it in theory, it is absolutely attractive to get a government more representative. And given that in the UK we tend to live in a one-party state under the current voting system, it becomes even more attractive to explore other voting systems. But as I have argued, there is another way out, which is that the alternative government in the UK gets its act together, which is a kind of perhaps a too big an ask, but you never know. So, but there, there's a sort of qualification to, I, I'm with Paul on this one. Let's move on to Sean Briggs from Norwich. Sean also says, would like to think there's an audience for rock and roll politics if you head towards Norwich. Well, thank yeah, let me know where. I'd like to think so, Sean. Anyway, he says that the uh, whole constitution needs major overhaul, a written constitution, term limits, elected second chamber, change of the voting age, devolution to the regions, and yes, a review of the voting system. And he says, how can we make those radical changes work within the current system? Is there a significant constituency for all of this, or is it limited to political geeks like me? Well, I don't think the whole country's talking about this, Sean, I have to say, but there is a strong case for virtually everything that you have argued for in that uh, package. But it will be an energy-draining package, and you have to get a government in place that's committed to it in the first place. But I think, you know, some of it, the, the voting age, devolution to the regions, although how that works is very complicated and doesn't necessarily address the problems for the regions. Written constitution, Gordon Brown is going to do that until he got blown off course. But it's a lot, and I don't think it's going to excite people. That I think there might be a way of making these dry issues exciting. But I do go back to that referendum on the voting system that the coalition had, and no one could claim that was an exciting few months. Uh, Mark Gillespie, the major parties are already coalitions within a party, and the backroom dealing that currently happens is far more opaque than the negotiations that happen between parties in order to form a coalition government. So he 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 sees this as no barrier towards electoral reform. The trouble is, Mark, the negotiations to form a coalition government happen after the election. The negotiations within a party, which, to be honest, aren't that opaque these days, there are blazing in the air rows on a daily basis within these two big parties. And then a program is agreed before an election. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect what then happens because a government can be elected on kind of 30% of the electorate. But I don't think it's that open after an election either. OK, we're going to do, I think, yeah, let's do one more on this. Uh, Stephen Hall, a long-time listener, first-time questioner, here writing from a wintry, bustling York, gripped by Yuletime fever as our Christmas markets are immensely popular with lots of people. He mentions the example of in Wales, which is interesting. It's got some publicity. The Welsh First Minister uh, and Welsh Labour leader Mark Drayford and Plaid Cymru's Adam Price have both signed a cooperation agreement lasting for three years, covering a whole range of issues. And he says that might be 
a uh, model of uh, many in favour of some kind of electoral reform where parties work together. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch that. By the way, you might be interested. Adam Price, when he was uh, a Westminster Plaid Cymru MP, he was the one that triggered the whole cash for honours investigation by the Metropolitan Police uh, when Tony Blair was Prime Minister. It made him and Downing Street life hell. Do you remember Yates of the Yard? Sort of, it all went around with a swagger, you know, I'm, I'm going to clean up politics. Uh, it went nowhere, but the Metropolitan Police, on the basis of Adam Price's request, began an investigation which lasted months and months. Now Labour MPs have asked the Metropolitan Police to investigate the Downing Street Christmas party. I wonder whether they will go at it with the relish shapes of the yards went for it, or whether they will conveniently decide not to investigate at all. Uh, let's go on to other matters. Ruth Bishop. I'm a GP and a few years ago was extremely frustrated with Jeremy Hunt as health secretary, especially with his treatment of the junior doctors and their contract. However, recently, any time I've heard him, he seems to be talking actual sense! Exclamation mark. So my question, will he feature in the follow-up book to the Prime Minister's or will he be in part two of the Prime Minister's We Never had. Oh, yeah, Ruth, before I answer, I should say uh, thank you all those of you who've uh, emailed asking me to write a sticker to friends of yours for Christmas uh, with a message in to the book of the Prime Minister's We Never Had, the new book that's out at the moment. Um, uh, loads of uh, already got the stickers, I know, because some have emailed me to say that you've got them. Others I'm going to be doing today. So all those who've asked for stickers should get them in the next few days. That's me writing whatever you've asked me to write, a message in to friends or family that you're giving the Prime Ministers we never had as the dream Christmas present. And if any of you are listening now who would like me to get the book uh, or loads of books for all your friends and relatives, I will just email me. Uh, steverick14 at icloud.com and I will with your address and the message you want to put in the book and sign I'll sign it and put the message in and oh yeah Christmas sorted anyway uh, uh, yeah so which so is, is is Jeremy Hunt a potential prime minister or is he going to blow it he wants it Ruth big time and I think he will stand again depending on when Johnson goes it's quite hard when you had such a prominent role and failed in the last leadership contest to get the momentum going again. And I think it depends on the context. If Johnson implodes and Sunak is discredited and trust does not look credible, all possible, they might go for the more serious sounding Jeremy Hunt, who I agree has had uh, a good pandemic having not been a particularly successful health secretary, or a, although he was a long-serving one. Thank you. So context, yeah. If it's all chaos, they might go for someone who appears thoughtful, considerate and sensible, which he has done in recent contexts. But I, I know others who are very critical of his time as health secretary, indeed, in preparing for this wretched pandemic. Uh, Gillian Oliver. My question is about David Blunkett. He was on the Today programme with reference to the Calais Channel deaths, making the point that because the government has closed down all safe routes to claim asylum, the English Channel is practically the only way left. 
The interviewer asked David Blunkett, surely the government should open up some asylum channels then, if it's so keen to put these traffickers out of business. And Blunkett, quick as a flash, said, yes, but it could put Nigel Farage in Downing Street, since this whole area is so politically toxic. And I was left thinking, this is Gillian, well, is that it then? That things are so toxic, there are no other options. Well, yeah, it is really depressing when you have people, and David Blunkett will be one of them, who knows there are other ways of dealing with this, but worry that any attempt to do so would just let Farage and the populace soar in electoral popularity. We've dis- I think we discussed it last week a bit. I think the only way is some de- arrangement with France, and that's impossible at the moment. Uh, relations are a disaster. France is, is Britain's most important ally, not the United States. It's next door. It's the equivalent size. There are these common issues of which this is one of the most appalling, The what's happening to asylum seekers. There needs to be politicians brave enough to create the space and challenge Farage is really difficult. And Blunkett is not being complacent when he says that, you know, but I think there is some scope to get this sorted with France. Uh, Gillian adds, my niece lives in Sheffield, and though a mere 21-year-old was listening to your podcast before, I even got round to commending it to her. I find this astonishing. She has no experience of these characters, now long gone, who still give us clues to today's dramas like David Blunkett. So I agree that you must come and do a show in Sheffield, as you clearly have fans there too, but I'm thrilled to hear that. I love Sheffield. So, yes, see you both there. As you can tell, Jenny, even from the questions today, we have lots of people, students, people in their 20s, listening, trying to make sense of the craziness as we all are. Claire Mackey, who is, uh, she describes herself as Walthamstow Wetlands Claire. I cycle on the Walthamstow Wetlands, and she walks on the Walthamstow Wetlands. I wonder what you think it will take for the environment to become a key issue in British politics. The public is becoming increasingly interested in the importance of climate change, but there only seem to be short flurries of political debate on the topic. You mentioned last week you think the Greens will play an interesting role in the next election. Do you think their popularity will increase significantly? Well, I think it is there. There is now this consensus that radical action is required within the UK and to some extent within the international community. How, of course, remains the overwhelming question and whether politicians are willing to say anything which might involve some short-term loss in terms of, I don't know, paying much more for petrol in cars, flights soaring in price, you know, the, those kind of the difficult issues. But I think there is a, a sense that it is a, a kind of one of the top of the agenda items. And whether the Greens do well or not, I think depends on the Labour Party. If the Labour Party purely pitches itself in terms of sort of solid competence, the Greens with their radical verve will attract some who might otherwise have voted Labour. You know, the the art for Labour is to be reassuring and exciting and radical, that that you have to combine the two. Um, Now, actually, what they're proposing for for climate change is radical, including spending a lot of money through borrowing. But they're going to have to... um, 
develop that and make sure it's credible and doable. And although Ed Miliband had some of his remit uh, stripped uh, in the reshuffle, uh, which was quite revealing, he is in charge of climate change for Labour, and he, I can tell you, is utterly committed and radical. And Rachel Reeves, though focusing a lot on reassurance and economic stability, is also committed. So let's see. But if they don't deliver, I think the Greens will do quite well in the general election, relatively so anyway. Uh, Andrew Kitching wrote about um, the Times giving me the idea for my early spiel, so I won't read it out. But as he puts it, another crazy week in UK politics flies by. Yeah, God, these weeks. Uh, Jeff Strange on uh, Lord Frosty Frost. Gotta let's get our blood pressure soaring for a moment by reflecting on old Frosty. Uh, Frosty has clocked that the, uh, I doubt Frosty has clocked that there are Northern Ireland Assembly elections coming up in May 2022. If he's going to sanction withdrawal of Art- Article 16, then he's missed pre-Christmas. And if he leaves it later than February, then those in the North being dragged out of the very buoyant single market will give Sinn Féin a potential landslide and set off the unification referendum. Yeah, I don't think Frosty has fully grasped, nor Johnson, the politics of Northern Ireland. They go for the sort of easy populist slogans. Yeah, we are strong. Yeah, we're taking on Europe. We'll trigger Article 16 if needs be, or they should be trembling at the idea. As ever, Jeff, consequences. They haven't thought them through. James Buston from the Isle of Dogs. I uh, re-B-J am the pepper speech. Am I alone? Oh, listen to this being counterintuitive. Am I alone in actually feeling a little sympathy for Johnson? How many of us have had a similar moment in a meeting or presentation? And by the way, I'm no Boris fan. No, I think you're being too kind on this one. Just think of the context apart from anything else. There he was, Johnson. In the northeast, the CBI had located the annual conference in the northeast. It's usually in London to do the leveling up agenda and all the rest of it. Johnson comes along and apart from the fact that it was incoherent and hesitant and ridiculous, spent half his speech on Pepper Pig, as I remember to call Pepper now, uh, which is based in the south. Yeah, and there was no reference to the Northeast and the, what was going on in that region. Uh, just one example of many why it, it yeah, kind of uh, when I'm live at King's Place on Thursday, if you can make it or streaming, I'll be reflecting, it's live stream as well, be reflecting more on what that tells us about him. James, I hope you can come along and put the case for, for him. We might well need it. Pete Morris, one of us who remembers you from your short trials of BBC days. It was not that long ago, Pete. He thinks with Keir Starmer that he now seems more comfortable and has surrounded himself with the people who should always have been there. But if he had made this move straight away, there would have been uproar from the left. The confidence he now has from more favourable polls is a powerful weapon to shut them down. This softly, softly approach can be a bit frustrating at times. He may not be the most entertaining man, but in his profession, the ability to read the room can't be underestimated. So there we are, from James, a defence of Johnson's pepper pig speech, and from Pete, time to look at Keir Starmer in a positive light. There we are, the balance of rock and roll politics. Anyway, uh, yeah, Martin Jones, he is in despair about the minimal news coverage we receive about Ireland and France. We just heard from Jeff Strange. He's often drinking Guinness in Ireland, gives us updates. And uh, uh, from the Reverend 
Paul Bathanot, we also get um, updates from Ireland. But you're right, on the news, we don't. Uh, and, and France, we have a regular correspondent uh, on the podcast, Dominica. But anyway, I know what you mean about the main outlets. It kind of it's as if they're not there. While by contrast, the USA features every night. Yeah, the BBC kind of shares this idea that America is this special relationship. Ignoring the events in these two countries only compounds our ignorance. Yeah, yeah. We, it's very look at what Ireland's doing in response to the this late latest COVID variant. Really strict measures. They're so close to us. Why are they doing it and we're not? You know. Oh yeah, Martin also says he recommends listening to Sunday Supplement eight o'clock weekly on BBC Radio Wales, which is uh, introduced by Vaughan Roderick, which you can get online and so on. Consistent, high quality of discussion covering a wide range of issues. I'm aware you've appeared on. Yeah, I, and I do because you're allowed room to breathe, Martin. Yeah, it's it is good, good, uh, good tip. Uh, sort of grown up political talk, which because most BBC editors are scared to let discussions breathe, you don't you don't get like you can on podcasts, and that is an example of where it works. So yeah, you can get that on uh, all the various outlets uh, that Radio Wales. So you don't have to be in Wales these days. One of the joys, the liberating joys of uh, modern technology. Okay, uh, Jim Bryce, Scotland's first minister, is currently in a quandary, balancing climate change messages with Scottish independence messaging. She's declared that the new Cambo oil field near Shetland should not be developed to keep to climate change targets. However, this is a damaging signal to the oil and gas sector, who see that as a threat to the 100k jobs in the industry, and damages the economic case for uh, Scottish independence. Alex Salmon's new Alba party have savaged her yeah well uh, dilemmas this is one of the themes of the podcast leaders face dilemmas and i think nicola sturgeon as she navigates towards this elusive second referendum is going to face many dilemmas she's a very cool public figure uh, and presents uh, and is a powerful articulate advocate in contrast say to the occupant of number 10 oh, pepper pepper pig but um i'm sure she's kind of made the right call in terms of climate change but you're right impact on the economy the local economy and the economy is going to be the huge issue uh, when the debate about scottish independence kicks in so it's yeah problematic Robin Weber-Jones wonders if there's going to be a general election in 2023 or later. I suspect later, uh, Robin, although maybe actually 2023, it's nearly four years. You can do it then, I guess. Um, It will be kind of three and a half if he goes in the summer of 2023. Uh, Well, you know who did that after three and a half years? Ted Heath in 1974. He asked who governs, and the reply came, not you. It's quite risky going what appears to be early. I think Johnson will be very wary of that. And finally, a nice one from James Munro. Thanks for your podcast through the year. You certainly helped to make sense of it all. Yeah. Blimey, I don't think I have, James. Well, we're wading through nonsense. A series of political crises which, if penned by a political novel novelist, would be laughed out of the building. Exactly. We are living through times that publishers would say, well, if you're proposing that, forget it. Anyway, look, thank you so much uh, for listening. I hope you've noticed the kind of studio quality. It's like when I do the, the Week in Westminster, you're going to get kind of BBC quality. And uh, thanks for all for all those brilliant questions. I'm sorry if I haven't read them all out. Uh, just, I, I read them all. 
and there'll be more next week. Do send them in your points and uh, questions at the usual address, steverick14 at icloud.com. That's the address if you want to have the book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, as a Christmas present to friends and family. If you want me to write on a sticker a message and sign it, you know, say Christmas sorted, 11 Prime Ministers we never had, 10 chapters. You won't see your relatives. They'll just be, oh, yeah, Neil Kinnock, now Hesseltine, oh, yeah. And anyway, before all of that, I like to think I'll see some of you at the Rope Tackle uh, Arts Centre in Shoreham on Wednesday, King's Place on Thursday. And if you can't make it, it is stream live. Uh, We're going to reflect on the first half of what we've learned about Boris Johnson in the last year with a focus on Peppa Pig, his reaction to... The latest dramas in this bloody pandemic and in the second half more on uh, Labour and there'll be your hour unreliable predictions. So, yeah, lots of fun. Those tickets are on the, the Rope Tackle website or the King's Place website. In the meantime, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, have a great few days and let's get together at either those locations or on stream and in this podcast next week where we will have so much more to make sense of thanks so much for listening have a good week bye